as was noted already, it's a blessing, isn't it, to be able to come together on a Sunday morning, the first day of the week, and appreciate that as presented in the Word of God. It is the day that is the Lord's day, Revelation 1, verses 9 and 10. As we come together today, certainly these songs we've already sung remind us of the truth of the Word of God and instill in our hearts a desire to realize, even in that first song that we sang, faith is the victory, a statement borrowed exactly from 1 John chapters 4 and 5. You may have noticed in the title today that we will be thinking about things heard about the Church of Christ. You and I realize that, of course, the church is spoken of in the highest of terms in the Bible, but in, sometimes in conversations, in statements that others may make, we hear things that are said about the church. Let's look at just a small sampling of these today and use the Word of God to help us appreciate in some instances what some of these things may be. This introductory slide begins that discussion in this way. It's not uncommon, is it, to hear conversations and statements and perhaps various things said about the church. May I point out, this is not new. In Acts 17, verse 6, even in the first century, there were those who said, those are the people that turned the world upside down. Now that was made about, again, individuals that were consistent with members of the wonderful nature of the Lord's church. What are some things that might be said about the church of our Lord today? Some assertions obviously can be true. Others, however, are not. Let's look by way of discussion time today at some things which are not true. Now, as I have tried to separate these out, I want us to begin by looking at them one by one, and I've given as the title of each page a strong connection to the assertion that's made. I quote at the top, those Church of Christ folks, they just don't believe in the Bible. You may have heard a statement along that line made, and sometimes it's made in connection to the Ten Commandments, or yea, the larger portion of the Old Testament. If someone were to ask you or I, do you serve under the, old, the Ten Commandments today? We'd say no. We would very quickly say we do not. And quite often, we would see a scowl come across the person's face as they ask, Do you mean to tell me you don't believe in the Ten Commandments? And if time didn't permit for us to explain the reason for our answer, they may go away thinking, Well, he or she doesn't believe in the Bible. Let's give that some more attention. Now on that slide, I might invite you to notice, I've developed that point this way. You and I firmly believe that the Bible is the Word of God. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 16, all Scripture, both Old and New Testament, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. We believe that absolutely. That includes the Old Testament. You and I believe the Old Testament. There isn't a word of it that we do not believe. In fact, if you'll notice the second part, the next statement on that slide, didn't our Lord Himself exactly say, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. The Old Testament proceeded out of the mouth of God just as much as the New Testament did. No wonder in that connection. This assertion then that someone might make, 
Those Church of Christ people don't believe in the Bible. That is simply not true. In fact, though, the next part of that is this. You and I believe the Bible so strongly that we believe what it says about the Old Testament. And in Colossians 2.14 it says this, that that old law was nailed to the cross and therefore was taken out of the way. As surely as we believe in it, we realize it is not the law of God for the human family today. It was taken out of the way. Jesus Himself would exactly say in Matthew 5, verses 17 and 18, Think not that I am come to destroy the law and the prophets. I came not to destroy, but to fulfill. And I tell you, not one jot or tittle shall pass from the law until all be fulfilled. The Lord fulfilled it. He filled it full. He brought it to closure and completion. In the words of Galatians 3.24, It was the schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. Oh, we believe it absolutely. But we just know that we do not serve beneath it. And that includes the Ten Commandments. Now, that understanding, you see, though the assertion might be made, it's misdirected. It's not true in what it asserts. You and I, in fact, firmly appreciate the teaching of Romans 15.4, that whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. Among the verses I ask you to consider was that text in Ephesians 2.15, where there the inspired apostle would say that that which was against us, he was speaking about the old law of Moses, it was taken out of the way. Now that given thought then leads us to appreciate that might be an opportunity for us to have a discussion with someone who would make that assertion and help them understand why we, in fact, approve and appreciate the viewpoint that we do. Let's close that slide by this statement. One of the grandest themes of the book of Hebrews is that statement and that teaching about the grandeur and the superiority of the law of Christ. Christ's law is better than the law of Moses. It's superior to it in Hebrews 8, verses 6 to 13 point out that that old law passed away. A better one has superseded it. For you see, someone who then would assert that that old law is still in some way in force have misunderstood the thoroughness and the teaching of the Word of God. That was our first assertion that you and I may have heard and may still face. What about a second one? Maybe this claim you could hear on occasion has to do with music. Church of Christ people don't believe in music. Well, that's not true either. Let's in fact develop what it is that you and I understand based on the teaching of the Word of God. The Church of Christ doesn't believe in music. Let's try that somewhat differently. And let's again allow the Bible to help us say this. The Word of God says a great deal about music as it relates to worship. In fact, you and I have no doubt at all about that. But what we do know is this, the music that God has described and the music that He has presented is music He has identified. He hadn't left it to you and me to figure it out, nor to you and me to assert what we might prefer. He said the music He wants is unaccompanied, congregational, a cappella singing. That's what He said. 
in Colossians 3.16 and in Ephesians 5.19. He wants a cappella, unaccompanied congregational singing, speaking to yourselves. He didn't want solos. Notice as we speak to ourselves, we do so in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And in that action, we teach and admonish each other. Colossians 3.16 In so doing, we understand well then that this is what the Word of God says. Do we believe in music? We sure do. But we believe in the music that God says He wants in worship. Now that kind of assertion is quite common, probably more common than the first one we heard. The Church of Christ doesn't believe in music. You may note next on that slide is this thought, and it is the passage that directly follows the one we just noted. Colossians 3.17 Whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks unto God and the Father by Him. Isn't it then a sweet thing to appreciate that that music that God says He wants is a music that is described by those things we just noted. The instrument we play is the heart. H-E-A-R-T, not the harp, but the heart. And as we play that instrument with understanding, 1 Corinthians 14, 15, with a desire to in fact adore and praise the God of heaven, it is the music that God says He wants. In Hebrews 2, verse number 12, one of the last observations that you and I might make is, it says, in the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. Today, consider for just a moment the words of the songs in which Brother Larry has led us. Faith is the victory. If you'd like to do so, turn over to 1 John 5, verse number 4. I mentioned it at the outset of the lesson because I thought it appropriate to do so then. I think it's even more appropriate to do so now. In 1 John 5, verse number 4, it says, "...for whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world." And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Someone at some point in the distant past put the text of that verse to music. They wrote out the soprano part. They wrote out the alto part in terms of music and the particulars of the way in which the, the notes need to be sung. They added in the tenor and bass parts and put it to music, and you and I just sang it. But it was taken word for word out of the sentiment of 1 John 5, verse 4. Do you notice that we thus sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs? The idea then behind that song is exactly a spiritual song. It's exactly, in essence, what you and I would appreciate, a wonderful truth, echoing the sentiment of 1 John 5, verse 4. You may notice that among the other songs that we sang, we sang a song about walking with the Lord, walking hand in hand with the Lord, the second one. We sang a song in that third case, again, about the connection to the reality of the Lord and what He has done for us. In all those cases, we have done that which is consistent with the teaching of the Word of God. We frequently include in our prayers that that which we do and say will be in accordance to His will. How much more in accordance to His will could we be doing than singing the actual statements of text in the Bible? I appreciate very much those who put the words of the Bible in, in, into a song. 
You'll notice as we close that slide then, as we sing and appreciate this element in our worship, we very much believe in music, but we believe in the music that God said He wants. What about a third one? Another assertion you may have heard or you may at some point otherwise hear. I tried to put the first few of these in maybe an ascending tone. Some of the discussion and some of the descriptions that you and I have heard about the church of which we are a part may well take us to this one. The church of Christ doesn't believe in anything but baptism. They're nothing but a bunch of water dogs. That's all they ever talk about is baptism. You may have heard something like it or at least a close to that statement. Because it's true, the church of our Lord does place an emphasis on baptism. And we do not apologize for it either. We do so because the Lord did. We do so because Paul did. We do so because the other New Testament writers did. But let's see, in fact, if we can develop that point and do so as you can see on the slide. The precious gospel of Jesus Christ, which He commissioned the apostles to preach and teach, which He in fact said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. What are we to preach? The gospel. No doubt about that. In fact, in that statement of Mark 16, verse 15, go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. When you and I think about the gospel, when Philip preached that gospel in Acts chapter 8, it was the eunuch who said, here's water, what hinders me to be baptized? In the preaching of Christ and the preaching of the gospel, it sufficiently included the, re the relationship to baptism that the person in the audience, in that case the eunuch, the eunuch's the one who said, I'm ready to be baptized. To preach Jesus is to preach baptism. To preach the gospel is to preach baptism. Didn't the Lord say that? Could I bring to our attention again the reading in Matthew chapter 28? All power is given unto me, Jesus said, in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. Doing what? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. We've already noted in the sampling of verses that we've highlighted how significant then is the teaching of baptism, how pertinent is the reality of it, and yet some of the greatest truths connected to it are yet to come. Let's look at the next point on that slide. This baptism that again you and I emphasize because the Word of God does brings us to this truth. Baptism is that critical act in which one calls on the name of the Lord and has his or her sins washed away. A person can believe in Jesus, and by that I mean have a recognition that He lived, have a recognition that He built a church, have a recognition that He did walk the planet, and that person can go to hell believing every bit of that. That won't save you. You and I read, you see, in passages like this. It is interesting in John chapter 12, verses 41 and 42, there were those who believed in Jesus, but yet they didn't obey Him. And they were lost. The devil even believes in Jesus, 
There is not a creature in existence that believes more strongly in the nature of Jesus and His church than the devil, but the devil won't be saved. James 2.19 Belief alone won't save. Furthermore, there are those who may well even appreciate this. They may well have changed some element of their life. You and I would call that repentance. Maybe they believe so strongly in some of that connected to Christ that they changed some things. Maybe they stopped talking the way they once did. Maybe they stopped behaving in a way they once did, but that's as far as they go, and in repentance, they can go to hell that way. Belief and repentance alone by themselves are not enough to save. We know that because the Word says it. What did Jesus say? He that believeth not shall be condemned. Mark 16, verse 16. Now, think about repentance, the one that we just mentioned. You and I know that repentance by itself isn't enough because on the day of Pentecost, what was it that Peter taught? Repent and be baptized. He forevermore joined those with the word and. He didn't say or. <laughs> One has to, you see, do something beyond repentance. Repentance alone won't save. For that reason, on that slide, you may note this. It takes us back to Romans chapter 6. It was the one, the text that Brother Joe read earlier. Beginning in verse 1 of that chapter, what shall, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us, as were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into His death? Therefore we are buried with Him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Baptism, you see, is in many ways a reenactment of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. In repentance, we die to sin. What does one do to that which is dead? You bury it. In baptism, we bury that old man of sin. We then rise in the resurrection scene of coming out of that water. We rise a new creature in Christ. It's no wonder that we have an emphasis on baptism. That's when a person is saved. That's what 1 Peter 3.21 teaches us. In baptism we're saved. For that reason, oh, we lovingly emphasize it because the Lord did. And isn't it true that we desire to preach the whole counsel of God, Acts 20 verse 20? As we do all of that, we thus highlight and emphasize the wondrous beauty of what it is that takes place in baptism. So you see, those who say that the church of Christ doesn't preach anything else, well, now that is going too far. We preach the whole counsel of God, not just baptism, but we surely include baptism in its place. And we do that without apology. As you and I close that slide, aren't we reminded... If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God, 1 Peter 4.11. We've looked at three claims or perhaps things you and I may have heard. Let's look at a fourth one. What else might well be a part of a description? I've entitled this one, Salvation by Blood, but it's in some ways connected to the one that you and I just noted. Here's a statement that at least you may have heard something like. The church of Christ doesn't believe in salvation by blood. They only believe in salvation by water. 
again, it relates to the emphasis that is quite often laid upon the reality of baptism. And you see, this one is quite frankly a strong negative assertion that you and I don't believe in the blood of Christ. That we do not have relation or a consideration about its power. May I be quick to say this is not true. It is not factual. And it does not represent the church of our Lord. Let's step through the statements on that slide. We've already given emphasis to baptism. But as you look at that next statement, Ephesians 1 verse 7 says that you and I, yea, one and all, if they're saved at all, are saved by the blood of the Lamb. Salvation by the blood of Christ is the only way one can be saved. You and I learn in Hebrews chapter 10 that the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. We learn, you see, that the necessity of blood is seen in Hebrews 9.14. In that connection, we did highlight this. How does one then come to apply the blood of Christ to himself or herself? You and I know the application comes as one is baptized. In baptism, we make contact to Christ's blood. That's what that text in Romans chapter 6 just taught us. Again, as you give thought to the way the wording is presented, we are buried with Him. Where was Christ's blood shed? In His death. And therefore, in regard to the body and the blood that was on it, you and I are buried in baptism. In so doing, we contact His blood. And that blood washes our sins away, allowing us to be resurrected to life. What a picture. What an image. That, you see, casts a very strong spotlight on the power inherent in baptism. Therein lies another issue. Some of those who are wont to make a statement like this, they don't think there's any great power in baptism. Many of them think you're saved before you're baptized, and that's not true. You're not saved before you're baptized. Baptism doth also now save us, 1 Peter 3.21. Isn't it true for that reason? We learn something about the greatness of the ordering of these things. Repentance must come before baptism. Acts 2.38 Belief must come before baptism. Mark 16.16 16. Confession must come before baptism. In the words you and I notice, again in Acts chapter 2, perhaps for those reasons we close this by saying this. In Romans 6, verses 16 to 18, we at least can close this brief discussion by noting this. Paul highlights to the Roman brethren an issue that no doubt was one of great moment then and still continues to be, and it's this. In verse 17, they had obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which had been delivered to them and being made free from sin. They became the servants of righteousness. I hope all of us know they had become free from sin. How had it happened? The previous verse said it happened as they obeyed from the heart. That form that had been delivered to them, that form of doctrine. What's the doctrine? What had they been taught? We learn again in Romans 6, earlier in the same chapter, they'd been commanded to be baptized. There is when they were saved. There is when they became free from sin. Our world today does great disservice to the teaching of the Master. 
when belief is inserted to be the answer there, it's not belief. It couldn't be. Surely in that light, we see then one more time that some of that which might be said about the church isn't true. We've looked at four of them so far. As you transition with me to this one, could I ask you to ponder maybe one of the most common statements that are made? The Church of Christ people thinks they're the only ones going to be saved. They're the only ones going to heaven. Now clearly that's made in a derogatory way. It's made in an insulting way. It's made in a way to cast an unloving spirit upon what the church is supposed to be. Let's take a moment, though, think through some of the features connected to that. And let's do so like this. Couldn't you and I begin at least to think of this in this light? The Word of God is right. Regardless what you or I may think about it, regardless what some other person may say about it, the truth is God's Word is right. Hosea 14.9 had put it like this. The transgressors would fall in the nature of what was asserted, but God's Word was right. Just as sure as Hosea has said that, you and I know today in 2 Timothy 2.15, there's a reminder of the same. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. There is a rightness connected to the right dividing of the word of God. When conclusions are thus reached, in light of the Word of God, that conclusion must be right. I brought to your attention a verse in John 12, verse 48. Jesus said, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my word hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. There is thus a tremendous premise connected to the truth of the Word of God. That premise is echoed in statements like Luke chapter 10, verse 28, and even presented in other passages such as Proverbs 14, 12. There's a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. That verse never seems to lose the power connected to it. What can seem so right can end up being wrong. It can be misdirected. It can be moved with misunderstanding. May I say to you, we can make this statement. Those who will be saved are those who have followed the Word of God, not substituting men's ideas, not substituting men's opinions or assertions or speculations. Few are going to be saved. I say that without apology because the Bible teaches it. The Word of God asserts it. You and I must, may I repeat, must, ensure that we're numbered among the few. I call to your attention that text in Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. For many shall say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. Then will I profess unto them, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. It is significant then that there are many which may make claims and assertions, perverting and twisting the word of God, and yet, under the 
thinking that they're saved, they're not. You and I must not believe every spirit, but we must try the spirits, whether they be of God, to borrow the teaching of 1 John 4, 1. We've looked at five things so far today. Five claims, five assertions, five statements. We have found that all of these things were in fact not the truth, at least in the way they were stated. There may have been elements of truth in the thinking related to them, but the assertion had problems with it, at least in light of that last one. May I say to each of us, for any person who's reached the age of accountability, only those who are in the body which Jesus' blood purchased, only those whose names are in the book of life will be saved. That much is so clear. When it comes, though, to the body which is saved, we know that's the church that the Lord purchased. It's the one that teaches His truth and wears His name. As Paul taught all of that in Ephesians chapter 4, it brings us to the close of our lesson today. Where do you and I stand with regard to these statements? I hope we haven't been misled by them. I hope that we haven't allowed them to cause us to look with less favor upon the church which our Lord bought. Jesus bought one church, no others. He has one body, no others. He died to establish one kingdom, no others. Men may garble that truth. They may try to make perversions connected to it based on their preferences, but it doesn't change what the Bible says. May I trust that each of us, in faithful consistency, strive to live not persuaded by some of the statements men may make, but persuaded only by the Bible. There could be someone in this assembly today who would be ready then to return to the faithful ways of the Lord, to give your life in absolute and full allegiance to what Jesus has died to make, to make possible. We're told in Matthew 6, to put the kingdom first. If you haven't been doing that, you need to make some changes. You need to make some new directions in life, and you need to come back to where you once were. As you put the kingdom first, that will be manifested by the conduct and the things exemplified in your life. Others around you can see those things and be drawn closer to the truth of the Lord. If we today could be of help in that way, upon your repentance and confession, we'd be so delighted to pray along with you. If you, however, have never become a Christian, what better day than this one? Believe in Jesus, repent of your sins, confess His name and be baptized, and we would love to assist you, to help you, and to surround you with arms of love and encouragement. Brother Larry has chosen this song of encouragement. And right now, if there will be someone who would desire to come, we would encourage you. In fact, we would strongly encourage you to do that now. While together we stand and while we sing.